Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. Cheers! Cheers, here we are. Can I reach you? Oh, oh. oh my god, we, we did. did! We're so smart. We are having a beautiful Sunday, guys. A delicious Sunday, a delicious, if you will. nutritious. Carrie Ann, what you sipping on? Um... I feel like I should ask you, Allie, what am I sipping on? It's oh, pineapple juice. Yeah, that's a tequila pineapple. It is delicious. Mm-hmm. I have to be really careful with fan, you because you don't have, you're allergic to orange, so I, I have look, to make sure I don't poison you. I think this is the first time I've looked at a drink and not immediately asked if it was orange. I just mm-hmm. accepted it when you handed it to me. Yeah, I got you. It's a sign of friendship after all these years. There's a Tropicana uh, mixer I picked up. Um, I feel like the cocktail recipes have really empowered me to try new things, even though I'm still drinking my beer over here. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But I got a uh, pina colada mix from Tropicana. It's really good. It's got coconut and pineapple in it. Well, it's very refreshing. Your first one had a splash of that in it, but that one is just straight pineapple. And I dropped your straw on the floor, so you'll notice that that's gone. I wasn't going to say anything. Um, I almost like rinsed it off and put it back in. But Obi saw me and he was like, don't do it. <laughs> Thanks, Obi. Yeah. Shout out to Obi. Yeah, he's a yeah. real one. Yeah. He's my conscious sometimes. Sometimes I, I just need a witness to keep me keep me on the street. Keep you accountable. Now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like my cats are the opposite. They all three would have looked at me and been like, do it. Do just it. fucking do it. Do it. Do it. No one will know. Well, I just... Just do it. I just... So, my floors were mopped two weeks ago, and then on Friday, I did... I swiffered again, but when I picked up the straw, there was still cat hair on it. Well, you do have a cat with hair again. I know. I know. Her hair is back. But, you know, had it's it been... It's luxurious again. Had I just swiffered and mopped, I might have... I might... But, the, but I just didn't... I just didn't want to do that to you. I appreciate it. I really so, do. no straw for you. Thank you. Plus, I do love those straws, though, because they're like the smoothie straws. So they're, they're nice and big. Huge. Yep. Yep. So. Um, though, like, this cup is such an elegant, cu- elegant cup mm-hmm. that the straw takes away from it a little bit. So I'm very True. happy to, like, just enjoy it for all that it is with its little gold leaf and mm-hmm. uh, pseudo fleur de lis. Yeah. I, is that I, what those are? Art Deco-y vibes? Yeah. Yeah. It's cute. We've been sipping out of these cu- uh, cups. These cups. For a the, couple weeks in a row. These cups have held most of our cocktails. That's cute. That's cu- I almost said that's cute. That's, that's correct. Cute and also true. Cute, cute and true. Um, I brought the uh, uh, Bloody Mary mix to my neighbors uh, last night because he had had it at the housewarming party. Like, I talked yeah. about that on the pod before. Gave Tim the recipe. But for me, it's like, it's always better when somebody else makes it for you. Yeah. You know? Agreed. So, I was like, I've got a bunch of tomato mix, so I just mixed it on up. And it's, yeah. it really is good. I think we did a good job with it. Oh, absolutely. Um, You know which one I made recently? What? I made the conspiracy theory. Oh, yeah? So, it's loosely a... um like a blackberry mojito type vibe. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just so refreshing that it was great when the, with like that string of 90 degree, 100 degree weather days. 
like you don't want to actually drink anything because then you get tired. Yeah. Or at least I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like day drinking without the alcohol. Yeah, exactly. So you're just having a fruit, fruity a little fruit, bevy. A fruity, a fruity afternoon. A fruity afternoon. Um, we also were, we had the request on the request line to get the, uh, your Thanksgiving pasta salad recipe on Patreon. That pasta salad recipe is a secret from the gods. Mm. It is everything. My partner's mother, um, consistently has called to ask about that the Thanksgiving pasta salad. Pasta like, salad. She called me one day, and I assumed that it was, like, for Farron, like, she'd been trying to reach Farron, so I handed Farron the phone, uh-huh. and her mom goes, actually, I was calling for CA. <laughs> I was like, uh, hello? Hello? Hello. And she says, can you send me, the like, your ingredient list? Mm-hmm. So, it's a hit. Are we calling it the Thanksgiving pasta salad? Um... We can call it the, the the Thanksgiving pasta salad. Is there another name that feels more appropriate in your heart? Not at this time, but okay. I'll think on it. Think on it. Because I'd actually forgotten that I made it for Thanksgiving. I just make it all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's not a purely Thanksgiving, though. Certainly a delicious Thanksgiving edition. Mm-hmm. Okay. Pasta salad. Okay. Not just for Thanksgiving. We don't want to put it in that... The you not know. just for Thanksgiving pasta salad. There we go. That sounds more like us. Yeah. There we go. Yep. Sold. Who says we need a marketing team? <laughs> <laughs> we are so smart and funny. We should definitely run that up the ladder, though. We might. It might get denied. Deno- yeah, Jeff is probably like, what are you talking about? Do better. Right, right. Do so better. So maybe we'll put out a poll. We'll see. Okay. Um, have you made anything else that's been good recently? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so um, I'm vegetarian, have been off and on for, like, 15 years. My partner is now interested in, like, vegetarian vegan mm-hmm. options. So I was telling her about jackfruit and mm-hmm. how delicious it is as barbecue. And she's yeah. like, well, have you ever made it? Fuck no, I've never made it. I go to a restaurant and buy it just like everybody else. <laughs> right. Um, and she was like, well, we should get a jackfruit. So I was sick last weekend. She pulls me from my deathbed, <laughs> makes me go to Super G Mart and buy <coughs> and buy half a jackfruit. Oh wow. Like S- not from the can. No. Like I've only ever fresh, made it from the can. A fresh ash jackfruit. Wow. So wear gloves. Okay. Because it is so sticky and the the stickiness is like hydrophobic so it doesn't come off with water huh and it took like that's its only defense mechanism 10 times of washing my hands before i could get this stuff off and that was with dr bronner's dove like dishwash and regular soap wow and vinegar and lemon juice wow could not get the sticky off however the fruit worth it good it was Delicious. Did you bake it or pan? Put it so in pan? we ended up boiling it. Okay. Um, ever like we did some research. Should have probably baked it after we boiled it to like really give it that uh-huh. stringiness. Um, but we boiled it and then like just tore it apart to turn it into Shredded a fake it. chicken. Yeah. Got it. Yep. So ten out of ten would recommend. It tastes just like juicy fruit gum. 
Just in its in its just in its raw wow juicy form. fruit gum. Juicy fruit gum was based on jackfruit. No way. It for sure was. But jackfruit is not juicy. It's just like it's this, just fruity. It's just fruity. Does it lose its flavor after five seconds, like juicy fruit? The fruit lasts longer than the gum for the flavor, like in your mouth. I cannot believe. The more you know. I the had no you idea. Know. You can also apparently boil the seeds and they come out like kind of with a nutty flavor. Oh, and like you can like seeds? mash them. Oh, they're like big seeds, like avocado size or a little smaller than avocado size. That is so weird. I've always, always gotten it in the can. Yeah, we will be getting it in the can in the future. Um, yeah. Just because the sticky, like we almost had to throw away a knife because it took us that long to get it clean. Oh, my God. It super does not like water. Weird. Yeah. It's very strange. You know, I fried bacon the other day. Um, my parents were in town and fried bacon for breakfast. And I would fr- I forget about animal grease and how, mm. like, that didn't Gross. go anywhere. Yeah. Like, I, I was trying to clean the pan and it was just like, I felt like I was spreading it around. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I of course, didn't put the grease down the sink. But there are still some on the pan. I, but, I mean, what do you do with the grease, right? Like, I threw it away. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I I'm not going to save it. That, no. That's not for me. My mom does. But I think that that's just... I don't I don't want to, like, marinate anything in it. Mm-mm. Feels pass. gross. Feels yeah. gross. Yeah. No, I... We have a little jar that we have the grease in that I need to do something with. Yeah. We'll probably throw it away, too. I was talking to my neighbor last night when we were talking about how if you think about something for too long, it grosses you out food wise. Yep. Anything you, if you think about it too long, it'll weird you out. I think pizza would be my one exception. I think about pizza. You don't get grossed out about people with their hands. Those snot nosed kids, the high school kids at the just. Well, when you put it like that. Right. Ew. You're welcome. I'm here to ruin everything for you. (laughs) Do you want to know something that we're going to do today that's going to be really fun? What? We're going to play a drinking game. Oh, so I need to save some of my drink? You do. I also brought this up here so we wouldn't have to go back downstairs. You do know I have to drive home at some point. How serious is the drinking game we're going to do? That's up to you. Okay. We're going to take it very seriously then. Okay. Because <laughs> that sounds like a good time. <laughs> but it will not apply until we get to Good. To so mine. I get to go first. Yes. Which means I, don't know. I get to go through my part sober. Correct. Well, Ish. you've got tequila. I'm like a and third of the way through my tequila. Right. But we all know that you've had another one. But We didn't all know that I'd had another one. Well, you said, we I said earlier. Oh, okay. That's all right. That's true. They can keep That's the secret. True. Okay. Well, let's start with a story time. Let's do it. So, story time. 400 years before Julius Caesar, Rome was a city kingdom ruled by kings. With me so far? Yep. The seventh king was the tyrant Lucius Targaryen's Superbus. Mm. He was often called Tarkin the Proud, which is much easier to say, so I'm glad that we call him that. Wanting to gain control of neighboring towns, Tarkin insisted that they sign treaties with Rome, and those towns that refused would do so at the risk of war. Mm. One such town was Gabi. It refused to sign the Roman treaty, and when attacked, did not succumb to the might of Tarkin the Proud. 
Hmm. Tarkin hatched a plan and instructed his son Sextus to infiltrate Gabby. Oh, which Sextus? sounds so dirty. Yeah, yeah. Pretending to be ill-treated by his father, Sextus sought asylum with the enemy. The people of Gabby welcomed the wronged Roman prince with open arms. Once he gained their confidence, Sextus sent a message to his father and asked, What next? When the messenger reached Rome, Tarkin was strolling in his garden, as a tyrant does. (laughs) The messenger read out his son's message and then stood there waiting for a reply. But the king didn't say anything. Tarkin the Proud approached a grove of poppies and struck the heads off of the tallest ones with a stick. Back in Gabby, Sextus heard of his father's reaction and understood what this meant. Methodically, he proceeded to kill or banish all of the prominent men of Gabby who represented the tallest poppies in, their, in his father's garden. Hmm. Once deprived of its elders and influential men, Gabby surrendered to Rome. This story is where we get the term tall poppy syndrome. Tall poppy syndrome occurs when people are attacked, resented, disliked, criticized, or cut down because of their achievements or successes. And that's what we will be talking about today. I will be starting with a story every time from now on. That was a fun reaction. I love that. I like that you were just like pulled in. Yeah. Like there was a lot of eye contact happening. Yes. Okay. So today we're going to be talking about tall poppy syndrome, but very specifically in relation to women in the workplace. Okay. So the tallest poppy is a study that was led by Dr. Rumet Billen. It also sounds like a children's book. It does, doesn't it? The tallest poppy. Mm-hmm. It's an adorable name. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> the report reveals some shocking statistics about the consequences of systemic of this systemic syndrome and its impact on the individual and cost to organizations. A lot of today's topic is from a report re- released on March first, twenty twenty three, by Women of Influence which is a leading global organization committed to advancing gender equity in the workplace. This is the first international research project of its kind. Mm. So we talked before about like weird psychology being very like American centric specifically, or I guess Eurocentric, but like predominantly white people, predominantly men. Um, This study looked at over 103 countries and um, interviewed thousands of women working across all demographics and in all professions. It looked at how their mental health, well-being, engagement, and performance are affected by the interactions with their clients, colleagues, and leaders surrounding their successes and accomplishments. This study found that 86.8% reported experiencing tall poppy syndrome at work. And this reveals that women who are successful are reporting being bullied, belittled, challenged on their successes, and made to feel as though their place is to not take up so much space. You're nodding. Like, this is a trope. This is something you've seen or... Yeah, I think it's hard for for women in general. I think uh, being apologetic is so wrapped up in, like, who... Like a lot of self identity for women, yeah. So I, I think you really touched on it as far as like taking up space and advocating for themselves and oh, for um, sure, yeah. 
And the more successful and accomplished you are, the more you're reported to experience this. So, quote, our data tells an eye-opening story about how tall poppy syndrome negatively impacts ambitious, high-performing women and what this means for organizations, says Dr. Billen. She is the CEO of Women of Influence and the author of this study. When reading through stories about personal experiences from respondents, we noted a recurring theme. Those who had or are experiencing tall poppy syndrome did not know that these phenomena had a name. Not only does our data reveal the negative effects of being cut down because of one achievement, one's achievements, it helps us understand how the cutting down is being done and who is most likely to do the cutting, and most importantly, legitimizes the, way, the experiences of women who, in many cases, have experienced this throughout their careers. So who is cutting down these women? Who is belittling them? Um, is it men? Is it women? Like, who is the enemy? According to initial feedback and comments from the respondents about tall poppy syndrome, many believe that the women or that women are most likely to cut down other women because mm. of their successes and ambitions. But our data tells a different story. The tallest poppy study found that men in leadership positions were more likely to penalize or undermine women due to their successes. Women, on the other hand, were more likely to cut down peers or colleagues. Got it. So, like, men in higher places of authority are more likely to cut down the women below them. Women are more likely to cut down people kind of on their same level. Got it. The act of, quote-unquote, cutting someone down because of their achievements or successes manifests in the workplace in a lot of different ways. So, all of these actions are forms of cutting people down, which is part of tall poppy syndrome. And I'm going to give you some numbers. 77% of of respondents had their achievements downplayed. 72.4% were left out of meetings and discussions or were ignored when it was their place to be there. Mm -hmm. 70% said that they were undermined because of their achievements. Um, 66% said that others took credit for their work, Mm -hmm. which is like super common. Yeah. Um, it depends on how your organization is structured. Right. But it is easy for management to take credit yeah. or or feel or, or get the, the praise for the work of their department. Yeah, exactly. Additional ways that people experience tall poppy syndrome, including belittling, being silenced, disparaging comments, and microaggressions. Experiencing tall poppy syndrome is detrimental to a woman's self-confidence and well-being. Of those who were surveyed, 90%, or almost 90%, indicated that their stress had increased because of their experiences of tall poppy syndrome. 73.8% indicated that it had a negative impact on their mental health, and 66.2% cited lower self-confidence. Other effects include feelings of isolation and burnout, the lack of desire to share or celebrate their successes or accomplishments. And this has a direct impact on productivity, right? For sure. If not dealt with, it can damage an organization's culture. According to the study, top talent will burn out, check out, and leave. So if you have anybody at your organization Nonprofit, of course, I'm in the nonprofit sector. You're in the for profit sector. This is a human experience that spans sectors. 
Um, If you don't recognize people's achievements, celebrate those achievements, give credit for those achievements, um, it's going to lead to burnout. Like, there's only so many times that somebody can do something without feeling like they're successful or that their successes are recognized without without checking out. Oh, for sure. Quote, organizations often talk about the war for top talent, when instead there should be a focus on retaining top talent. As a result of tall poppy syndrome, top performers are minimizing their skills and accomplishments. 60.5% of those who responded to our survey believe they will be penalized if they are perceived as ambitious at work. When ambitious workers find themselves in an environment where excelling is penalized, their productivity will be impacted. They will have one foot out the door. This is not only negatively impacting the individual, but the organization as well. That's interesting. I think we kind of touched on this in the burnout episode, but there's there's two camps, right? There's the you have to do as much as you can to be seen as much as you can, uh-huh. which it sounds like that's not what we're talking about. Right. No, this is... So, at least in nonprofit, which, of course, is the sector I'm more familiar with, they talk about the lavender escalator. So, working in um, social work, there are very few men in social work, right? So, when men come into the field, there's a lavender escalator to the top. Like, men get promoted more quickly. Mm. Like, our CEO is a man. He has Mm -hmm. been at the organization far less time than many of the people he was promoted from within. So, um, but he, he's been there less time than many of the other people there. And in different, and is differently qualified. I was going to say. Right. Exactly. So, um, but we look at the people right under him and he, it we have a fairly diverse, in terms of gender, um, executive leadership team, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Yeah, racially, we're still missing a lot of diversity, mm-hmm. but in terms of gender, we have a lot of women at the top, which is also great. But it seems as though there's this sense of like not over sh- overshining or not like stepping up and holding your head high about your accomplishments when there's like men above you or people above you who will take credit for those accomplishments. Got it. Um, And this is not the only workplace I've experienced that, where, Mm -hmm. like, men come in, they're promoted quickly, they start running things, and unless they're very intentional about saying, oh, look at the other people who are doing this amazing work and, like, the successes of each of these people, they take it as their own collective success, which can be really... Yeah. Demotivating to people. I have never in my professional uh, biz, like grown up jobs, I've never reported to a woman. I've only ever reported to men. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. true. And the thing that I noticed when I was like really trying to get my career off the ground uh, in my first job, I worked there for five years and um, I was at the time 25. Mm -hmm. So. I was the age of a lot of their children, a lot of their daughters. So for for me, the struggle that I had was the successes that I experienced were 
were not noticed because it could be excused basically like she got lucky right right. and i i genuinely believe that that's because i was seen as being so early in my career and i think i think we look at that a lot in entry-level jobs as you know you you just don't get the you don't get the recognition right uh, because you're just trying to prove yourself and tread water and yeah maybe you remind somebody of their daughter (laughs) i don't know (laughs) which i mean i think there's a point of connection there which can be a good thing right but there's also like do you see so seeing a professional as someone who's the same age as your kid and then like closely associating them with that can stymie a career in some ways like if you I mean, I've done okay, but yeah, you've done great. <laughs> um, but you work your, like, you work your ass off, and you have risen through the ranks in like this really amazing way, um, and not without setbacks. But you've had good leaders who saw your potential and were willing to like trust that you would be competent and able to do all of that work. Um, so. I think in a lot like it's great that you haven't had some of these really awful experiences of you know working in places where they cut you down or don't recognize your your um contributions. Yeah, that sounds horrific. Well, do you remember like my very first job? We went to a ribbon cutting for a place that I had helped yes. to design. Yes, and they didn't name and- you. There was nothing about me or my role, even though my role was the, like, I was supposed to be the person running the thing. Mm -hmm. And the leader of the organization who was giving the speech never mentioned me, never mentioned my position, Mm -hmm. never mentioned the work that we would, that I would be doing out there and instead just took a lot of credit. Yeah, I remember that. And I had a miserable time working there. And it started kind of at that moment of it doesn't matter how hard I work, you are never going to see yeah. what I'm putting in here. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think that is a disservice that leadership can often have is that they're they are responding to the shareholders or to the board. Mm-hmm. Like they're you know, they're front lines for all of the pressure that comes from whoever the money is coming from. And the worker bees are so far removed, there, there's there's no understanding of what somebody's day-to-day is like. Yeah. And middle management is somewhere in between. Right. It can get confusing. For sure. So when the goal is productivity and the impact is the bottom line, understandably, no organization would want to allow tall poppy syndrome to continue in their place of work. Absolutely. Right? Like, you want to have a healthy culture that's built on trust where we all share in successes and we build each other up. Um, so who better to look for look to for the solution than those who are experiencing this firsthand? When given the opportunity, or this is a quote, when given the opportunity to weigh in about how organizations should be handling this, a few respondents threw their hands up in frustration and resignation. I really don't know, one said. I wish I knew. Others added, I honestly have no idea, and I wish I had an answer for you. But many others offered up well-thought-out solutions, and the responses came in loud and clear. Women are calling for change and accountability. 
So these are some of the things that they came up with. They said organizations should do in order to combat this tall poppy syndrome where women leaders are like trying to grow and be consistently being cut back. Mm -hmm. I also have an opinion that I will give after. Ooh. Yeah. You sure you do you want to give it first or at the end? Whatever. Whichever. All right. Let's see if I cover it. Okay. And then if not, then you can add. Number one is raise awareness. Organizations must listen when people come forward and report being cut down or diminished in the workplace. Just listen to your employees. Name it. Talk about it. Share it. Talk about why it's unacceptable. Um, what is the impact on people and teams and the success and culture of the organization? Two, hold people accountable. Um, so one person said, quote, stop talking and take action. Hold people accountable for their actions and recognize it. Recognize that women are treated differently when they are successful. Three, set a standard of transparency. So um, being transparent when it comes to salaries, we know that women are more likely to be paid less than their male counterparts with similar credentials. Opportunities for promotions and advancement should be transparent, ensuring that all employees are held to equal and equitable standards. Um, would do a lot to remedy this in the workplace, create, and it would help create a culture of trust. Adopt a zero policy, to, uh, zero tolerance, tolerance policy. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, when success is. Um, success is something that should be, should not be blamed or shamed or downplayed, ignored or attacked. Um, acknowledge that this is what is happening and creating a clear understanding as to what is going on, how to identify it and create a culture of zero tolerance. This can create an adding and fostering a culture of trust and belonging. Invest in training and celebrate wins, invest money in women and training programs, retention programs, and sponsorships, not just mentorships. Respondents suggested emotional intelligence, communication, bias and awareness, and psychological safety as topics that training should focus on. Make a practice of celebrating wins, recognizing and acknowledging people and the way that they want to be acknowledged, and create a culture where it's safe and encouraged to succeed. Normalize promoting qualified women into positions of power and just support women. You said you had one more? Yeah, I think professionalism is the hill that I will die on. Oh, absolutely. For me, obviously, podcast Allison is totally different than work Allison. And I think that we all switch into work mode once we and i had my my work voice on a couple weeks ago uh -huh. and you were like oh my god you sound so different i know and i think we all switch into that but there has to be an expectation set for what is and isn't accepted yeah and it all feeds to culture which you yes. touched on but it cannot be a locker room talk organization right. none of that should be it's totally inappropriate. None of that should be accepted. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think I think that everybody needs to be on the same page as far as like what is and isn't okay to say, mm -hmm. and body language included. I think that cutting cutting somebody down means either saying something right or changing the way that you treat them. 
Yeah. And if the organization as a whole takes the stand that that's not okay, we're not going to accept that. That's not acceptable here. Right. You will weed out people who are not a good fit for the organization. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And just in doing so, you build longevity with the client or with the staff that you have. Like, not only does that improve your workplace culture, but it improves retention among staff. Mm -hmm. Um, If you are standing up for anyone in your organization who's experiencing discrimination or who um, is being belittled at work um, and just making that the general rule, like, this is how we behave professionally, then the people who were being marginalized are now more likely to stay, which is... (laughs) good for most everybody i think there's also something that everybody can do as far i I think people talk too much shit and i think Mm -hmm. people gossip way too much Mm -hmm. i have a zero tolerance policy for that drives me crazy i love that like you can you can guess all day long why somebody got the promotion or you didn't get the promotion and people will run their mouths about stuff like that. But ultimately there are a lot of things that you are not privy to. Right. As far as like the direction that they're going or other roles that are going to become available depending on, you know, staffing and, and budget and all that stuff. I think that people do a really big disservice when they, uh, and I think ultimately people think that sometimes they're doing the right thing, but right. sometimes people just stir the pot for no reason. Oh, absolutely. And I, I just have no tolerance for that. Absolutely. So there's like this parallel thought of crab theory. Have you heard of crab theory? That God is a crab. There's that one, but there's a second one. Okay. So crab theory is this idea that if you put a whole bunch of crabs in a bucket, um, that whenever one crab like starts to try and climb out of the bucket, another crab is going to grab it and pull it back down. Mm -hmm. And this keeps all the crabs in the bottom of the bucket. Like you don't even have to put a lid on it because the crabs are not going to work together to figure out how to get out of the bucket. Whereas if they did, like if they all helped each other, they could all get out of the bucket really easily. So it's this idea that specifically for marginalized communities and for women, for people who are not cishet white men who are like trying to build and grow and become these tall poppies who are like trying to figure out how to rise above that we very quickly cut each other down because I don't want you to rise if I'm not able to rise too. Right. And rather than seeing it as an opportunity for all of us to figure this out together. I totally agree. And I was going to do crab theory separately, and I might still, but I feel like there's so much of this that happens. Like, it is that assumption that women are going to cut each other down just as quickly as men cut us down um, because of this idea that, like, I don't want you to rise because I'm supposed to be the one rising. Right. And what a toxic piece of the culture that is, too, and how that contributes to this idea of, like, cutting off the top the tall poppies yeah a hundred percent oh god i couldn't agree more yeah so i think it's just culturally like this idea that we need to figure out how to overcome um and how to see one person's success as being a success for all Mm -hmm. rather than saying it as oh well i could have or you know they did that because and cutting them down 
in other ways. Something that I would recommend to all leadership too is to don't treat your employees like your friends. Yeah. Treat your peers as your friends because those are people who you mm-hmm. can realistically be friends with. But you shouldn't be sharing any information yeah. to people that work for you. Oh, absolutely. That's a good piece of advice. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Write that down. Taking notes. Give it to Sabrina. <laughs> <laughs> the tallest poppy study demonstrates that tall poppy syndrome is an issue impacting women in the workplace across cultures, organizations, industries, and sectors. No organization or individual is completely immune to it. During a time when women are burned out, stressed out, and fed up, organizations can no longer afford to drag their feet and turn the other way. And I completely agree. And I think that you're right. It doesn't just start with leadership. It starts with peers. And it starts with building people up versus, you know, talking about them behind their backs or gossiping. Or no, God, life is too short to be mean. We just, we have to start celebrating each other. We have to start seeing and successes I, for all people. I haven't seen this in real life. Truly, I haven't. Really? Never. No, I think... I've seen people who are not the right fit for roles, who have, I don't know, I I, I think I've never seen people collectively be harsh yeah. for just, just on the, on the premises of somebody being successful, like the yeah. jealousy thing I don't think I've ever seen, but being in HR, I intentionally distance myself from all of the bullshit so uh it doesn't really get to me unless it's Mm -hmm. a thing yeah i completely understand and i think that being in hr does put you in kind of a unique position where you have the opportunity to observe things from a different vantage point than if you were in the muck of like some of these relationships Like, you get to see it and advise people how to fix it. One of the things whenever I'm, you know, hiring a new employee is I say, are you prepared and able to work in HR where you can't have normal relationships and friendships with your coworkers? Right. It's a very unique uh, role. And you have to be mentally prepared for that because you can't participate in those conversations where people are cutting each other down. Yeah. That you really is, can't. You you just don't get to to participate in that. Yeah. Which is good right. in the long run because negative negativity is just toxic. It has no place in my life. Right. So I hope that it has no place in, in the workplace. Well, and in, in anyone's. Yeah. So <coughs> um this is just like a a fun little side thing. Um, when I was Googling tall poppy syndrome, I was I came across the Wikipedia page, mm-hmm. naturally, though I got almost no information from there except for how different cultures talk about tall poppy syndrome. Mm. So in Japan, a similar common expression is uh, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Yeah. Yep. Which, yes. That checks out. In the Netherlands, the expression is uh, don't put your head above the ground level. Okay. Like a groundhog. Boop. Right, right. Um, in Chile, the expression is pull the jacket. Sure. Okay. Yep. In Scandinavia, the expression is known as the law of Yante, which it, I'm 
assuming that's how you say it in Dutch, which originates from a 1933 novel and contains rules and stipulations such as, quote, you're not to think you are anything special. And perhaps you think we think, or perhaps you don't think we know a few things about you. Huh. So they call it the y'all, the law of Yante. Okay. Um, so it's kind of known everywhere around the world as like this, you know, blend in, don't stick your head up right. too high or else you will get hammered down. The the way that we had talked about it, like the 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 what you just said, kind of made me change the lens that I'm seeing it through. It's yeah, exactly like you just said. It's almost like just don't don't make yourself too big, otherwise we're gonna cut you down. We're gonna cut you down. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, and Girl, I, you puff up, puff it up. Right, right. Be big, take up space, mm-hmm. um, because you deserve to be able to take up space when you're amazing. And oh, yeah. um, being a subject matter expert helps. My, my, like, advice to anybody in their career is learn your shit, know your shit on whatever it is that you find interesting, whatever it right. is that is your path, and own it. Go ahead, hyper-focus, mm-hmm. sit down with lots of coffee over many years. Put your 10,000 hours in, and then you won't feel small anymore. Yeah, and hopefully when people do try and still make you feel small or manplant mansplain your area of expertise to you you can look around and still stand in your greatness oh 100 because you deserve it because when i was 25 i wasn't i i wasn't prepared to stand up because i i, I didn't know my job as well as yeah. i do now Abs- who does it 25 oh 100 yeah and so I, I think it, it becomes easier over time absolutely Absolutely. But while even while we are still learning and growing, which hopefully we're doing our entire lives, um, it's more important to build each other up and than it is to try and keep each other down. Amen. So that's tall poppy syndrome. Wow. We never talked about how poppy is an opiate. We did not. That did not make it into the notes. Mm. Well, poppy is an opiate. (laughs) (laughs) Poppies. Um, No Wizard of Oz references. Which is hilarious because I watched The Wiz last night. Uh, well, so you would think I would have had tons of uh, get it together. Wizard of Oz references. And not get it one. together. So this is your Wizard of Oz reference. Don't fall asleep in the poppies. Stand among the poppies. Amen. Love that. Thank you. All right. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we are talking about Vincent Van Gogh. Sweet baby angel. We have a drinking game for Vincent Van Gogh. We do. I have never been so excited. (laughs) We'll be right back. I've switched to beer. Yes. We're here. We're back. Oh, we should have cracked it on. It's okay. I, I was uh, going to attempt to make, like, a sound. I'm That's not okay. a beer-cracking bail, sound bail. person. All right. So today we will visit a story that is nothing short of a Lemony Snicket novel. And I think that I've said that as an intro before, but, like, this time it's... If you have, I don't remember who it was for, so I feel like we can use it again. Perfect. But this this is just perfect. It's For a Lemony Snicket. Exactly. He was inspired by 
Vincent, Vincent Van Gogh. Yeah, maybe. You heard it here first. Which tracks? So today we're going to be talking about the life and kind of the works, mostly mostly the life of Vincent Van Gogh. If you want to see his works, Google it. That's right. Give it a goog. Here we're going to be talking because this is a podcast and not a video. Correct. And his life is so interesting. And it, and I texted you like a couple weeks ago being like, are you going to cover him or should I? Is it okay that I do? Because there is a lot there is a lot of psychology overlap. Oh, so absolutely. I, you know, so I didn't know what 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 whether you were going to cover. So, that. did you go to the Vincent Van Gogh experience? No, I did museum. Didn't. Okay, with I'll the screensavers on the wall. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. It was actually very good. Was it? Yeah. Super trippy. I okay, s- so you you have a lot more to contribute than I do. So feel free to sprinkle your knowledge. Excellent. I also have memory loss at this point in my life, mm-hmm. and very little rec- like recognition. Whatever the word is. Um, I don't remember a lot about it. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that's great. And to contribute to that memory loss, we are going to be playing a drinking game. Excellent. All right. So we have to drink. And for those of you at home, we're drinking a Pernicious today. Yep. Which Go is grab a beer. Probably my favorite beer. I um, love the can art. I know. It's really beautiful. It's so pretty. It really is. So Wicked Weed, which is in Asheville, North Carolina... Um, this is their IPA. Um, it's called Pernicious. We've paired it with our pasta recipe. Um, so you, if you got the pasta recipe from season one, you've probably had it. It was a pairing. Um, but it's just really good. It's so good. So that's what we are drinking today. But we are going to be drinking whenever something tragic or sad happens to vincent van gogh oh shit i'm gonna need another beer i'm only two sips into this one i can already tell this is gonna be a hot mess so um i need you to say into the microphone whenever it is that you feel appropriate to drink and i will also cue you for when i think it's appropriate this feels so engaging i'm really excited okay Okay. sad or tragic sad or tragic okay okay So, Vincent Van Gogh was born in the Netherlands. All right. Take a sip. No. (laughs) No, the Netherlands is so great. I'm sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) On March 30th, 1853. He was a Dutch post-impressionist painter who was arguably the most famous figure in the Western art world. In a 10-year span, Van Gogh created 2,100 pieces including 860 oil paintings, most of which he painted in the last two years of his life. It's a lot of oil paintings. I know. In two years? And they were barely dry by the time he stopped painting. (laughs) Exactly. His works include landscapes, portraits, self-portraits, still life, and they're known for their bold colors, lots of yellow. Yep. Lots of yellow, which we'll kind of touch on here in a little bit. He loved um, his sunflowers. Yes. Highly expressive brush strokes that show movement, which was like really revolutionary at the time, like Starry Night. Yeah. Is, you know, that that's why everyone loved it. Um, Vincent Van Gogh sold only a single painting during his lifetime. 
and drink. <laughs> drink. That is depressing. It is depressing. Cheers. Cheers to our first. Considering that he's one of the most. I mean, he he's the most famous painter ever, right? Of all time, yeah. Of all time. Okay. He didn't even have a Ninja Turtle. I mean, the Ninja Turtles were Renaissance, I suppose. But to be what? so famous. So, oh, the Ninja yeah, Turtles yeah, yeah. were yes. Da Vinci, Leonardo, mm-hmm. Michelangelo, Donatello. Yeah. And the fourth one. Yeah. But none Ringo. of them. Ringo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Vince- All famous artists. Yes. Anyways, go ahead. Vincent van Gogh was the oldest surviving child of his father, Theodorus, not Theodore, Theodorus van Gogh. I love that. And mother, Anna Cornelia Carbentus. Vincent was named after his grandfather and also after what would have been his older brother, but unfortunately that child died during childbirth. Is that a drink? Yes. (laughs) All right, here we go. So it's interesting that they named the child... Like they the the child was born was going to be named Vincent was born was a stillbirth right and then they just recycled the name. I mean stillbirths and like loss of children was so common at that I know. point. Like I know. you're gonna run out of names you like. Are you at some point potentially? Okay. Vincent's uncles were primarily art dealers and sculptures on his mother's side, um, and so many people were also theologians in the family and religious leaders so it's like this interesting mix of um art artists yeah and and people in the church okay vincent grew up in an average middle class household where food was available for the most part you know and the family endured basically little hardships very normal life Uh, In fact, Vincent's mother really pushed for the children to be social and to uphold the family's social standing. Van Gogh was really serious, and he was a very introverted child. He was homeschooled for the first part of his childhood, but then was sent to boarding school. Mm. Van Gogh hated it, and he wrote frequently requesting to come home. Instead of bringing him home, his family sent him to another boarding school where he became deeply unhappy. Um, Drink. Oh, okay. During his childhood, however, his first introduction to art happened around this time. He was encouraged by his mother to draw, and he became sketching still life. That was his first muse, still life. Little little bowl of fruit, you know? Oh. We all love a little avocado love on the table. Love it. A little tomato. Mm-hmm. A little, little, little banana. A little banunu. Oopals and banunus. Opals and bananas. Even art couldn't keep him happy at boarding school, however. He even wrote later in life that during this time he was, quote, cold and sterile. That's depressing. I know. Things would begin to look up for him, though. After leaving the boarding school, his uncle got him a job as an art dealer. This was the happiest time of his life. He was working, and at age 20, he was even earning more money than his father. So he was making... That's cool. Yeah. That's impressive. Vincent became very close with his younger brother, Theo, and the two would write letters back and forth for their entire lives. Theo kept all of Vincent's letters. 
However, Vincent only kept a few of the letters that he received. Vincent's letters were expressive and have been described as having, quote, a diary-like intimacy. Mm. And they read very autobiographically. Uh-huh. There were more than 600 letters from Vincent to Theo. Wow. I know. Isn't that beautiful? I'm so glad he kept them. Oh, my gosh. What an amazing, you know, relic to have. I know. And there were some of them even included, like, little sketches, which I think is very cool. Oh, cute. A lot of the letters were, they, were un, they weren't dated, but art historians believe that they were able to put them in the correct chronological order. And the letters were in Dutch, French, and English. I know. Americans are idiots. I know. We're so stupid. I mean, <laughs> we can barely write in English well. I know. And then here they are conversing mm-hmm. casually in three different languages. During his letters, he speaks about an artist that he really admires named Jules Breton. In a March 1884 letter to Theo, Vincent describes a story, like a real-life account, that he set out from his home on an 80-kilometer trip on foot to meet Breton. Wow. Like his idol. However, apparently... He became intimidated by Breton's success and the high walls around his estate. So imagine he's like going on this 80 kilometer walk, Uh psyching himself up to meet his hero. Sure. And then he's like, I'm just not good enough to be here. Can I tell you what this reminds me of? And this is so random. Yes. In The Sound of Music. Okay. We have Maria, who is left the abbey and is going to the von traps yes and she's singing i have confidence in sunshine and i have confidence in rain and she's like singing and dancing and then she sees like these big walls and this huge gate and i really just want vincent to like walk around singing i yes (laughs) but he doesn't know that but he doesn't do that he doesn't do that because he is in a different part of the world yeah he's like 170 years well 160 years behind yeah maybe So, he sees the high walls, and he turns around. He doesn't even go in. He leaves without making his presence known. And basically, he's a sad boy. He should really have more confidence. He should have more confidence. (laughs) Drink. Yep. (laughs) During his days as the art dealer, Vincent became infatuated with his landlady's daughter. Her name was Eugenie Lawyer. Eugenie. Eugenie. Great name. Yeah, good name. He was rejected by her after he confessed his love for her. Unfortunately, this broke his confidence and he began to withdraw again. So he was making progress. He was feeling good. And then all of a sudden, we got a drink again. That's correct. He began to isolate um, and he turned to Christianity, often praying while he worked and he painted. His job required him to move to Paris in 1875, where he became resentful of the art dealing world, stating that he didn't understand the value assigned to certain pieces over others, which is fair. I think art is relative. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But he was let go from his job a year later after moving to Paris. Mm. 
Over the next few years, Vincent bounces around from city to city, country to country, never staying anywhere long. He spends time as an unpaid supply teacher, a Methodist minister's assistant, a student. In fact, he took the entrance exam for uh, the University of Amsterdam theology, but failed. So he didn't get into the program. Cheers. <laughs> then he took a three-month course at a Protestant missionary school in Laken, but failed. Cheers again. <laughs> in January 1879, he became a missionary in a working-class coal mining district in Bruinage in Belgium. During this time, he gave us his, or excuse me, he gave up his comfortable lodging. So he was working there. He gives up his comfortable lodging at a bakery. There were like apartments above the bakery. He gives up his space to a person who was experiencing homelessness. And he himself moved into a hut where he slept on straw. Which is admirable. He's like giving up his home to That's a person true. who really needs it. That's true. But the church said that that was not cool. And he was dismissed for, quote, undermining the dignity of the priesthood. Uh, WWJD there. Exactly. I 100%. Yeah. 100%. So poor Vincent is lacking stability. That is for sure. And in 1881, Vincent heads home for an extended stay with his parents. Mm. During this time, his relationship with his parents starts to dwindle. Vincent's moods begin to change and he begins to act erratically. He continues to draw, however, but he uses his neighbors and his family members as subjects. And so he's really starting to start drawing people, um, one of which was his cousin Cornelia, who he starts to really kind of focus on. Cornelia was also visiting the family after her husband had passed away. Vincent and Cornelia would take these walks together, and Vincent enjoyed Cornelia's eight-year-old son. Vincent surprised everyone by declaring his love for her and proposes. Uh, what degree of cousin are we talking? First cousin. Okay. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cornelia responded in the 1880s way of saying WTF, by replying, quote, nay, no, never. Ah. <laughs> never! He continues to pursue her, though, writing and harassing her and her family. Cornelia refuses to meet with him and her parents, his aunt and uncle, by the way, referred to him and his, persist her, his persistence as, quote, disgusting. I see how they got there. Yeah, 100%. TBH. They're like, leave us alone. In despair, he held his left hand in a flame of a lamp, saying the words, quote, let me see her for as long as I can keep my hands in the flame. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> Cornelia's father made it clear that her refusal should be heeded and that the two would not marry. Interestingly, largely because of Van Gogh's inability to support himself. Fascinating. Not because they are related. Huh. Okay. I have more concerns now <laughs> yeah. than I did before. I'm going to drink to that, too. Sure. 
So shortly after, he spent three weeks in the hospital recovering for from a bout of gonorrhea that he had gotten from a couple of or a sex yep. worker. Okay. Um, in what can only be described as a rebound, Vincent began seeing Klesina Maria Hornick, who was a pregnant sex worker who had some alcoholic tendencies. Sure. Vincent lived with her and her young daughter, um, and they had met in January of 1882. So I'm wondering if we should make a um, decision tree. Sure. Well, like I love a decision tree. decision tree for Mr. Vincent Van Gogh. I feel like... Um, Question number one, are they related to you? Great. Question number two, do they make sound decisions and have a space of their own? Sure. Are they pregnant with your... I don't... I, it's not his baby. So that's, that's a complicated situation that sure. may or may not be for you. And we don't necessarily... I mean, maybe... There were extenuating circumstances around that. Who are we to judge? He loved her. Absolutely. For now. Yeah. So, needless to say, Vincent's dad was not thrilled about his new arrangement. Vincent was, again, a disappointment to him and his wife, his parents. Um, He pressured his son to abandon his new girlfriend and her two children. At first, Vincent said no. But eventually, a year later, he left the relationship and the children. Oh. This led Klesina to uh, distribute her children to family members. So, she had them stay with, you know, various family members, and she began uh, to engage in sex work again. Mm. In February 1888, Van Gogh moved to the countryside with the thoughts of uh, starting an art colony, which is concerning because, like, that would be, like, the beginning stages of, like, a cult leader. Right. Like, that's kind of the mindset that it's he's in at this cult time. Vibes, it yeah. is. Um, his time in the countryside became the most prolific period in his life, though. And he completed 200 paintings and 100 drawings and watercolors. Wow. He was enchanted by the countryside. He loved the fields and he loved the nature. And this is when we see a lot of the yellow come out. That's what I remember from the exhibit. I remember seeing, I remember reading about that piece and like seeing um, some replicas, but I think there were even a few originals. Maybe one original. Oh, cool. Yeah. Because most of the originals obviously are not going to be traveling through the Van Gogh exhibit, Mm -hmm. but many replicas. um, And then the interactive wall that was really neat. Oh, cool. Yeah. But. The, the countryside made a huge impact on him. Oh, absolutely. There was so much sunlight. It's just, it was different. Like, he'd lived in Paris and London and a couple other places throughout his life. And Vitamin D is good for you. 100%. Be outside, be with nature. Yeah, absolutely. It's healthy. So, in March 1888, he painted a landscape using the gridded perspective frame which is a brilliant concept where you break up a photo or a image into boxes. Right. And you work for, you work on one at a time. Did you ever do that in, in art class? I did, yeah. Yes. I remember that. I didn't realize that it came from him. So, he wait, he's the one who did, who, like, started that? Or he, he just did it? Unclear. Okay. Unclear. We're going to give it to him, though, because I would, I will. he's had a rough go of it. <laughs> so far. 
So he moved into what is described as the yellow house where he would remain for some time. Mm-hmm. This is where you see a lot of his... Uh, there's paintings of rooms and stuff yeah. that use a lot of yellow. Yeah. That's this house. That same year, he... Um, befriended a fellow artist named Gawkin and he he asked him to visit the yellow house he was like come mm-hmm. come visit me let's paint together yep so at first Gawkin was like I don't know who you are sounds gay <laughs> I don't I don't like we don't really know each other um but after much pleading from Van Gogh Gawkin arrives on October 23rd 1888. In preparation for the visit, Van Gogh painted a series of sunflowers and wrote in a letter to Theo, quote, I'd like to do a decoration for the studio. Nothing but large sunflowers. Aww. So that's when he started painting the sunflower series, which he is also really known for. He also purchased two beds because the house wasn't furnished at all until this point. Where he's like, oh, people are going to come over. I should probably have something to sleep on. So he gets there and the two paint together and they visit for many days. It didn't take long, though, for the rose-colored glasses to begin to fog. Mm. Their relationship began to deteriorate and Van Gogh admired Gawkin so much and he wanted his praise and approval so badly. I think he might have, you know emotionally smothered Gawkin a little bit. Yeah. Unfortunately, Gawkin was a little bit arrogant and domineering, which was really frustrating for Vincent. Um, And Vincent began to feel scared that Gawkin was going to leave or dismiss him. Mm. He had some abandonment Mm -hmm. trauma. Mm -hmm. The next few days were really, really rainy, like very heavy rain, which meant that the two were cooped up in the yellow house together. After the rain had broken, Gawkin decides to take a walk in the countryside. He's like, I gotta get out of here. It's unclear whether Vincent thought that he was leaving for good or whether he was just going on a walk, but it was reported that Vincent followed Gawkin on his walk and rushed toward him with an open razor blade in his hand. Not a good thing to do when you want your guests to come back. A hundred percent. Right. A hundred percent. Write that down. Yeah. It doesn't seem very hospitable. So there was a standoff in the hills surrounding the yellow house. However, ultimately, Gawkin remained unhurt, and he did stay in a hotel that night. I can't say as I blame him. I know. So after this altercation, Van Gogh arrived to, or excuse me, returned to his room where he, quote, seemingly heard voices and either wholly or in part severed his left ear with a razor. Mm-hmm. causing severe bleeding. Right. He bandaged the wound, wrapped the ear in paper, and delivered the package to a woman at the brothel that Van Gogh and Gawkin both frequented. Could we not send people our ears? No. Let's, let's, let's not. Let's maybe not do that. Van Gogh also was found unconscious the next morning by a policeman and he was taken to the hospital where he was treated by Felix Ray, a young doctor who was still in training. Mm. The ear was brought to the hospital, but Ray did not attempt to attach it. 
reattach it as too much time has passed. Um, Van Gogh researcher and art historian Bernadette Murphy discovered the true identity of the woman who he brought the ear to, uh, Gabrielle, who died in Arles at the age of 80 in 1952, and whose descendants still live just outside Arles. Mm. Gabrielle, known in her youth as Gabby, was a 17-year-old cleaning girl at the brothel and other local establishments at the time that Van Gogh presented her with her ear. She was 17. She was 17 and not a sex worker. Not a sex worker. I mean, I don't know. She she cleaned at the brothel. I right. don't know whether she engaged. I don't know what she did. Oh, okay. Uh, besides clean, but it's not my business. Right. Van Gogh had not had no recollection of the event at all. He totally blacked out. Really? Yeah. He ran into my knife ten times. He ran into my knife ten times. So this suggested that he may have suffered an acute mental breakdown. The hospital diagnosis was acute mania with generalized delirium. Mm. And within a few days, the local police ordered that he be placed in hospital care. Gawkin immediately notified Theo, his younger brother, who the day before had proposed marriage to his oldest friend. And that evening, Theo rushed to the station to board a night train to Arles. He arrived on Christmas Day and confronted and comforted Vincent, who seemed to be like semi-lucid. And that evening, he left Arles to return back to Paris. So imagine you're Theo. You propose to your bay. You get a call. And then in 24 hours, you've gone to visit. Now you're going back to Paris. It's like a whirlwind. There's a lot going on. But Theo is like his oldest and only true friend. Right. During the first days of his treatment, Van Gogh repeatedly and unsuccessfully asked for Gawkin, who asked a policeman attending the case to, quote, be kind enough, monsieur, to awaken this man with great care. And if he asks for me, tell him I have left for Paris. Oh. The sight of me might prove fatal for him. End quote. Wow. Mm-hmm. So whatever they actually had going on was very intense for Van Gogh. Right. I think, I mean, I I think that Van Gogh, my personal belief is that Van Gogh had a moment where he idolized somebody that he got to come back to his place. Yeah. I don't think that there was any type of relationship, personally. Yeah, yeah. But But regardless, like, Van Gogh very clearly had some form of an attachment to... Oh, yeah, and he was afraid he was going to leave. Yeah. Can you imagine if you're Gawkin, though, and you're like, this motherfucker just... Like, you just invite me to your house, you cut off your ear, you attack me with a razor blade. I didn't even want to go. You begged me to go. I'm going to go home Mm -hmm. and have a drink. So, Gawkin fled Arles, never to see Van Gogh again. They continued to correspond, though. And in 1890, Gawkin proposed they form a studio in Antwerp, which is a place that exists. In Belgium. Meanwhile, other visitors to the hospital included Marie Guinot and Rulin, who were other artists at the time. 
Despite a pessimistic, a pessimistic diagnosis, Van Gogh recovered and returned to the Yellow House on January 7th, 1889. He spent the following month between hospital and home, suffering from hallucinations and delusions of poisoning. In mm. March, the police closed his house after a petition by 30 townspeople who described him as Le, Fa- Le Faro, the redheaded man, madman, the redheaded madman. Van Gogh returned to the hospital after he was no longer able to stay in his house. Uh, Paul uh, Signac visited him twice in March. In April, Van Gogh moved into rooms owned by Dr. Ray after floods damaged paintings in his own home. Two months later, he left Arles and voluntarily entered an asylum in saint Remé de provence After this time, he wrote, quote, Sometimes moods of indescribable anguish, sometimes moments where the veil of time and fatality of circumstances seem to be torn apart for an instant. He's having a rough go of it. Sounds like it. Van Gogh gave his 1889 portrait of Dr. Felix Ray to Dr. Ray. Mm. The physician was not fond of the painting and used it to re- to repair a chicken coop <laughs> and then gave it away. That's embarrassing. In 2016, the portrait was housed in the Pushkin Museum of Fine Arts and estimated to be worth over $50 million. Can you imagine, like, this, this guy looking down, like, I repaired my chicken coop with this guy's painting. I'm surprised he still kept it. Which is then worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. A chicken coop. Yeah. Wow. I know. I'll keep the Antichrist painting just in case. Right. Please. On the 27th of July, 1890, at age 37, Van Gogh shot himself in the chest with a revolver. The shooting may have taken place in the wheat field in which he had been painting or in a local barn. The bullet was deflected by a rib and passed through his chest without doing apparent damage to internal organs. Possibly it was stopped by his spine. He was able to walk back to his home where he was attended by two doctors. Two of them, Dr. Gachette, served as a war surgeon in 1870 and had extensive knowledge of gunshots. Vincent was positively, or excuse me, Vincent was possibly attended to during the night by Dr. Gachette's son, Paul Louise Gachette, and the innkeeper. The following morning, Theo rushed to his brother's side, finding him in good spirits. But within hours, Vincent's health began to fail, suffering from an infection resulting from the wound. He died in the early hours of July 29th, and according to Theo, Vincent's last words were, the sadness will last forever. Mm. Drink. Girl. (laughs) It is a very tragic tale. And I didn't know how sad it was going to be until I started my research. Yeah. This guy was just going through it. Oh, my gosh. And he died at 37, you said? Mm-hmm. Wow. From a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the chest, which is not a common... 
no. strategy. Right, right. Though, sans Google, I don't know how you would know a common strategy. Sure. It's just, it's it, you just don't hear about it that often, right. I guess. No, you're right. You're right. So, um, but, but absolutely devastating. Yes, and very fascinating. Um, I think that talking about being cut down. Right. Vincent Van Gogh, man. Life just kept cutting him down. And the fact that he was not able to see his worth or his success mm-hmm. is, I think, the intersection here. Oh, and, yeah, I would agree. And I, I feel bad that he never got to see how uh, valuable his life and works really were. And had he had more confidence, I, I think so much of his own turmoil was mental um like he very clearly had some mental health issues going on um but we we don't have a perspective for how other painters viewed him besides um his gush galkin galkin thank you which is probably pronounced wrong (laughs) yeah we've got but like we don't have opinions for other painters for like oh he was great for the time um, retrospectively, we can look back and say, I mean, he's an influential painter and um, his work are, is world renowned, but for the time, he only sold one painting. So. And one was a part of a fabulous chicken coop. <laughs> the best chicken <laughs> the coop. The most colorful chicken <laughs> coop mo- you've ever the, seen. The most yellow chicken coop. Well, great job. This week was a fun, that was a good one. That was a good one. We're going to not be able to do drinking games during podcast episodes for like a week or two. Okay. Well, we've never done one. I just I just thought it would be a good way to like... Oh, it was a great way. I you was know, very engaged the entire make time. Make it less sad. <laughs> we hope you're participating at home. Please do not drive or operate heavy machinery. Right. Or right. any machinery. Um, but if you also participate participated in the drinking game let us know and we'll give you a shout out because yo that one was a lot yes it was let's unpack that yeah thank you guys so much for listening if you feel so inclined head over to patreon support us so we can do a season three wouldn't you love a season three we would love a season three i would love to do a season three um if you haven't left us a five-star review on apple podcast Take a couple minutes and please do so. It means a lot. That's the best way for us to kind of get the get the, the word reach, out yeah. about the pod. So we we hope that if you feel so inclined, you will do that for us. We would appreciate it and love you forever. We are also on Instagram and we love to hear from you. So message us, send us pictures. If you also went to the Van Gogh exhibit, let us know. Um, yeah, stay in touch. We We look forward to them. And we love you. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaud at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.